What's up, guys? Welcome back to Storytime with Uncle Reddit. My name's John, and this is r slash Tales from Texport. For real this time. Had somebody comment yesterday <laughs> that they didn't like the blurry background, and I, I had it set up for something else. Well, several somethings, but the two main things are, one, because I kind of wanted something a little bit different. But unfortunately, the automatic blur thing doesn't exactly work right. It doesn't find the edges of me very well. And eh. and then the second thing is, uh, yeah, welcome to my dumpster fire. <laughs> Between Christmas presents and storage and cleanup and we're trying to rearrange. I got I got the top of my desk mostly cleared now so that I can actually function in here. But uh, yeah, but anyway, I'll figure that one out later. So, all right, let's get to the stories. Yet another IBM upgrade, part one. A recent story by uskippy8898 reminded me of an IBM upgrade, well, installation actually, that I experienced. Rather than putting a long comment in that thread, I decided to post this as a separate story. I wanted to call this post YAIU, YAL, I don't know, in the spirit of <laughs> YACC, YAC, but thought that might be a little too esoteric, but if you know, you know. Back around 1989 or 1990, I worked for a startup company that wrote networking software that ran on various flavors of Unix. I was one of the four developers in the company and was also responsible for porting our software to any hardware platform that ran certain flavors of Unix. To put it mildly, we ate, drank, slept, and breathed through our shaggy bearded mouths, obviously, Unix. Our company founders knew Dennis Ritchie and Ken Thompson. One of our founders' brother-in-law invented a hugely popular programming language that powered the internet in its early days. So yeah, we were fairly knowledgeable experts in that operating system and in creating software, making files, tar libs, etc. Then IBM released its AIX platform, and somehow we received one of the earliest models. Four boxes arrived at our office and we were told to not even take the components out of the boxes because a certified IBM system engineer would be there the next day to set it up, install it, and make sure we were properly trained. Okay, whatever. Since I couldn't take anything out of the boxes, I did take a look at the packing manifests and was counting the boxes and mentally checking things off. The manifest just had a listing of things we were getting. Big box, one of four, probably the main system, check. Medium box, three of four, rather heavy, hmm. Could be either the tape drive or possibly the CD-ROM drive. One thing to note is that the CD-ROM drives were not really ubiquitous at that time. In fact, I think this was our first system that used CD-ROM technology. We mostly used small tape drives for data storage. Next was a small box, number 404, about the size of a shoebox, but only a couple inches tall and fairly light. Hmm. I look at the manifest. Ah, CD-ROMs including the operating system and documentation library. Check. But where was box number 204? I called our IBM system engineer and said, Steve, just to let you know, the manifest says there are four boxes, but only three of them came. He assured me it was probably just an oversight and not to worry because this brand new system from IBM had everything built in and didn't need anything else. He shows up the next day and starts unpacking the boxes and setting things up. First, the big box. Yep, that was the main system. Then the medium box, which turned out to be an external tape drive. Then the small box, which was indeed just a bunch of CD-ROMs. I'm thinking, well, cool. The CD-ROM drive must be built into the system. That's really neat. Way to go, IBM. Steve starts hooking up the system and then pauses and looks at me. Uh, where's the CD-ROM drive? I shrugged and told him, well, maybe in box 204? He said, oh, well, not to worry. We can install the OS using the tape drive. I looked around, but didn't see a tape cassette in any of the packing materials. At this point, Steve got a weird look on his face. Uh, well, I think we might have a problem here. It seems we have a bunch of CD-ROMs, but no drive, and a tape drive, but no tape. I'm going to have to come back tomorrow. 
I shrugged. Oh, well, things happen. Do you happen to have documentation so I can start reading it? He pointed at the pile of CD-ROM discs and says quite proudly, Oh, the entire documentation library is on those CD-ROMs. I looked at him and asked, And exactly how am I supposed to access the library without a drive? Don't you have a printed copy? Steve just said, Well, once you have the CD-ROM drive, you'll be able to read the manuals. Anyway, I'll see you tomorrow. Part 2 coming shortly. Actually, Part 2 is here now. This is a three-part story so far. He may add to it later. Um, but it's all from the same user, so I don't think I said that up front. Sorry, I was babbling about other inconsequential stuff. Don't you love it when a system comes that you're supposed to have all the pieces for, and when one critical piece is missing, you can't use pretty much any of the other pieces? <laughs> I've had that happen before where we're building a restaurant, and it's got custom furniture, custom counters, like, you know, the frontline counters where the registers go and things like that. Well, it all comes with specialty hardware, and invariably, everything will come except for the hardware package. Actually, that's not true. Sometimes it's the hardware package. Sometimes it's the actual plans to help you put everything together because it has to be done in a certain order in a special way for that store, or you're missing both. So, oof. yet another IBM upgrade part two. The next day, Steve shows up at the office bright and early with the CD-ROM drive. He plugs it in, boots the hardware, mounts the drive, and starts feeding the CD-ROMs in. He's working at a side table in my office where I kept the machines I was porting to. And I'm working away at my own computer, a Sun workstation, the flavor of which escapes me. It may have been a spark. We affectionately called it a pizza box because of its size. Our company was developing software to control Synoptics devices remotely using SNMP, Simple Network Management Protocol. It was actually pretty cool. Our management software displayed the Synoptics hardware and showed all the blinking lights on the various devices. It was all really state-of-the-art built on X motif on Unix. I had various Synoptics devices in my office and could unplug cables from the box and have the lights on the software display blink out and pop up alerts. Ho hum, I hear you yawn, routine stuff these days. I know, but in 1989 or thereabouts, it was pretty dang sexy. I was clacking away on the keyboard and had multiple terminal windows open. VI in one, various makes running on others, all kinds of things happening. Steve asked me what I was working on, and I mentioned that I was porting our software to a compact running Unix system V. 5? V? I don't know. I asked him how it was going, and he said, oh, it's installing just fine. I got up to get something from the printer, and when I passed by his work area, I noticed a bunch of error messages on the screen. I don't remember what the error message said, but the most noticeable phrase I saw was something about being out of disk space. I stopped and took a closer look, and indeed, every command being executed was failing because there was no room on the disk. I said, uh, Steve, it looks like the installation's having a problem. And I pointed at the screen. Steve looked at me with an extremely condescending look on his face and said, Oh, that's not an issue. That's a make file. And it has all the commands necessary for installing the operating system. I said, yeah, I know what a make file is, but I also think the system's telling you that it's out of room on the hard drive. Looks like the temp is full. He sighed and then looked at me and got a very impatient look on his face. At this point, I should point out that Steve was probably in his late 40s or early 50s, and I was in my mid to late 20s. It was very obvious that he assumed that because he had been an IBM field engineer for 15 or so years, that he knew absolutely everything that needed to be known about computers. After all, IBM invented the things, right? Well, not really. Let's just say they did. Besides, he was clean-shaven and wearing a suit, and I was just a young bearded geek in jeans and a t-shirt. But Bob Arg, it really is okay. These make files are really incredibly complex and were put together by our system administrators. They know what they're doing. And to be honest, you really shouldn't worry. It should only take another 30 minutes or so and I'll have you up and running. Okay then, I guess I'll just continue working on porting our software to this compact. 
I then went into my wife's cousin's office, he was one of the founders of our company, and told him this isn't going to work. I keep telling Steve that he probably hasn't mounted the file system correctly because the system's out of space, and of course none of the compile jobs are working. My wife's cousin came into the office and peeked over Steve's shoulder. Hey Steve, did you mount the file system on the mount point correctly because it looks like you don't have enough room for the compiles to finish. Steve looked at him and said with more than a hint of impatience, it's fine you see, these complex make files can seem rather intimidating but trust me, it's working just fine. My cousin just said, trust me, it isn't, and he walked out. After two hours of running makes and not being able to get any part of the operating system working, Steve threw in the towel and said, I'm not sure what's happening but I'm going to have to call my boss and have him troubleshoot. About an hour later, two suits show up at the office. One was our IBM sales rep and the other was Steve's boss. Steve called his boss up on the situation. His boss sat down at the computer, took one look at the screen and said, well, here's your problem, Steve. Looks like the file system wasn't mounted correctly and there's no room on temp for the compiles to finish. I peered over his shoulder and said, huh, very interesting. Out of space on temp, is it? That's incredible, you could find it so fast. Steve mounted the temp correctly. Stop snickering, get your mind out of the gutter. And then he restarted the make process. It was very clear from the way the build was proceeding that things were progressing just fine and there were no more file system issues. I was still at my computer. Steve was watching the incredibly complex make file spit out its normal messages and his boss and sales rep were talking quietly looking over his shoulder. Slight digression. Some months prior I had heard the following joke. How many IBM engineers does it take to change a light bulb? Three. One to do the work and two engineers to swap stories about light bulbs they had changed for other clients. But that's just a joke, right? There can't be any truth to jokes, can there? Well, right about that time I heard the sales rep and Steve's boss talking about problems they had encountered at various times in their career from System 36s and System 38s and with the relatively new AS400. I guess that most jokes actually do have a kernel of truth in them. As Steve found out while trying to build the kernel of an IBM AIX machine. Thanks for letting me stroll down memory lane. Coming soon? What happened when we finally got our software ported to the AIX? It's not just engineers. Trust me. Even in the construction field, when I became a site supervisor, superintendent, things like that, we would all gather around at the office or... Cat. <laughs> He's not happy because I have his chair. Anyway, we would all gather around the office or on the job site sometimes and, you know, reminisce about old war stories from the construction industry and things like that. So it's every field. Trust me, we've all done it. Anyway, let's get to part three. AIX and Pains. Follow up to yet another IBM upgrade parts one and two. In parts one and two, I told the story about the problems we had installing Unix on an AIX platform. Once we got the OS installed, I was able to port our software to it without incident. This is what happened when I deployed our software on the target machine. We were performing on an RFP for a huge government contract for an institution that sounds like Pi R Us. <laughs> if you hold it out at arm's length and squint with one eye. The plan was for me to fly out to a suburb of Washington, D.C., install the software during integration week, stick around to provide any integration support, and make tweaks to the software if necessary, and then fly back. Easy peasy. I flew out from our offices in Los Angeles on a Sunday, and was at the facility bright and early on Monday morning. They already had an AIX workstation set up for me, and I had already confirmed with the integration manager and the main sysadmin that they had a tape drive and the necessary space on all the drives for me to install our software and compile it in the environment. I was pleasantly surprised to find that the system was indeed installed, had a tape drive, the tape drive worked, and they had all the disk space I could ever need for the software. In fact, things were going so smoothly that our program was one of the first of several major software packages that were to be integrated as part of the proposal to the government client, and I was done with all my work by noon on Tuesday. 
I spent Tuesday afternoon helping some of the other teams in testing their software, answering questions about our software, and actively monitoring the network using our network management software. There's something absolutely satisfying, to a geek like me that is, to watch people unplugging and plugging cables into the back of a network device, seeing the port indicator go off, off to green or yellow if there were significant packet loss issues on the device, and seeing the same simulated lights on our management software displays go from dark gray to green or yellow. In other words, our software was working as it should, and actively monitoring the network as it was supposed to. I called my boss, the primary founder of the company, and told him the good news. He then told me that due to intellectual property concerns and copyright issues, under no circumstances was I supposed to leave the source code on the network. He stressed that I had to leave the binaries and configuration files, but I had to remove the source code hierarchy. Okay boss, whatever you say. I told the integration manager that I was going to remove the source code and he understood. I put in a new tape and made a backup of the entire source code hierarchy. After making the backup, I then restored it on another file system and ran a couple of utilities to compare the two build hierarchies just to make sure the backup worked. After confirming the integrity of the backup, I then made a second backup of the source hierarchy and did another comparison just to be safe. By early afternoon, I had put one of the copies in an overnight delivery package and sent it back to the office in LA, and I would keep the other tape with me in case I needed anything the rest of the week. Of course, I have my original source code tape, but having the backup of the hierarchy after doing all the compiling and building was far better if I needed to restore the environment. After checking with the integration manager and the main sysadmin that it was safe, I then removed the source hierarchy. I spent the following day and a half helping out where I could, and by Friday the entire system was nearly ready, with only a few peripheral components still needing to be integrated and configured. There was a final meeting with the integration manager, the sysadmin and his sysadminions, and all the vendors to go over the final things before the presentation for PyRS on the following Thursday or Friday. When it came time for me to give my final status report, I iterated, reiterated, and then for good measure stated once more unequivocally that our source code had been removed from the file system and the only evidence that I had even been in the building was the binaries for our software and the associated configuration files. I stressed that due to legal issues, we could not, nor would not be providing our source code in any shape or form, and that they were responsible for backing up the file system that held the binaries. I was assured and reassured, and then told rather impatiently something along the lines of, yeah, we know, we'll be backing up the system as soon as the final integrations are made. I offered to make a backup of the binary hierarchy, but since other vendors had their binaries in the directory, I wasn't able to make the backup because of other vendors' intellectual property. But I was told again that they would make backups so everything would be safe. After a long, intense week integrating with 8 to 10 different vendors, everyone was tired and cranky, but were feeling pretty good about the prospects of winning the huge government contract. If I recall correctly, the other consortium bidding on the contract was actually being led by, you guessed it, IBM. I flew home that Friday and had a wonderful, well-deserved, relaxing weekend with my family. I was pretty tired from the cross-country flight and the jet lag was messing with my body. On the following Monday, I got into the office and opened my email and nearly wept. Someone had made the decision that before building the final system that was to be used for the proposal demo, they should make sure the machine was in a pristine state, and so it had been wiped. Oh dear. Somehow the sysad minion that was told to make the backup must have heard pack up or crack up or your mama's messed her backup, because you're probably way ahead of me here. They had not made a backup of the system before wiping it, and could we pretty please send a tape with our software so they could remake it? The company founder said, absolutely not. The only option was to fly out there and remake the software on their system again. And so, after calling my wife to repack my suitcase and bring it to me, that night I was on a red-eye flight from LA back to Washington, DC. Quick side trip, I can't sleep on airplanes and was stuck in a window seat in the last row of a section. 
Because of the emergency exit directly behind me, my seat didn't recline. To make it even more fun, the guy in the aisle seat got a drink shortly after takeoff, took two sips and then promptly fell asleep with his half-finished gin and tonic on his tray and his hand holding the glass steady for the whole flight. The flight was full and I was unable to get up and move. So for the entire flight, I was unable to sleep, unable to recline my seat, unable to get up to use the toilet and had to keep an eye on his drink to make sure it didn't spill. I took a shuttle from the airport to the hotel, arriving at the hotel around 7 a.m. I got checked in and took a long, hot soak in the tub just to try to be ready for the day. Around 8 a.m., the integration manager met me for breakfast and then took me back to the integration site. I loaded the tape with our source code and ran the make, which finished in about 10 minutes without any error messages because I knew how to check temp first. After copying the binaries and configuration files over to the integration machine and testing it, I looked at the integration manager and said, if you don't mind, can you please make a backup or two before you take me back to the airport? After the backups were made and confirmed, I once again removed our source code and we left for the airport. We stopped for lunch and I was back on a plane by mid-afternoon. That flight was so full and the temperature in the cabin was hotter than usual. I think the combination of stress, flying coast to coast twice in less than 24 hours, the heat and sweat, and eating several gobble gulp and go meals played havoc with my body because the next day I had broken out in a rash from head to toe. Thus endeth the story of the AIX and pains associated with that particular chapter in my life. But Bob Arg, I hear you cry. What about the contract with Pi R Us? Why, it was won by IBM, because of course it was. Yeah, back in the day, I'm pretty sure IBM pretty much ruled everything. To listen to one of my old uh, tech teachers who worked for IBM for years talk, it sounded pretty much like IBM ruled the world tech-wise. I've flown coast to coast a couple times back to back like that. It's not fun. I also did a turn and burn going over to Europe once had to turn right back around in less than, uh, I think it was just under 14 hours and fly back. Yeah. Spent more time on the plane on one leg of the flight than I did actually being in country. So, hey, it's their money, whatever. All right, guys, until the next one, we'll see you.